G'day, Dominic Barfield here. This is the RBC podcast. So we've reinvented, uh, or we're, what we did was we separated the uh, the clinical stream, so the clinical podcast you have uh, all loved and, and known from what started by Shane and Jasani uh, a few years ago. But that was actually an RBC podcast before that. It was actually started in 2007, and, uh, and it had 50 episodes and spanned uh, an, uh, three years. However, what we're trying to do is reinvent that, but reinvent that more with a focus on the research activity that happens at the RBC and the researchers behind that. So yeah, to give you an idea about their careers, what they're researching, what they're currently researching, how they got involved in research activities, and also maybe things to think about um, for the future, what they're actually currently doing as well. We're going to talk to professors and PhD students and, and everything in between to work out how they actually got involved involved in research and, and why they like it and why they like working at the RVC. So it's going to be slightly different if you if you already subscribe to the RVC clinical podcast when we focus more on the clinical activities um, and maybe how you help your patients. This is more to give you an overarching view of the research activities that are happening at the RVC um, and the researchers involved in that and their stories. So for the first uh, research podcast that's coming out, so we've been quiescent for about seven years, we're going to talk to Professor Dirk Whirling. If you have any questions uh, uh, that you would like to ask us about this podcast or you, if you would uh, like any ideas about future podcasts, then please either email me dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or you can always tweet me at Don Barfield. We hope you enjoy this re in returning of uh, the, the original RVC podcast. Um, and please, if you are available on uh, Apple Podcasts or iTunes, leave us a review. Five-star reviews would be uh, would be optimal as those that listen to the clinical podcast i ham on, ham on about that um but uh, but obviously it would be really good to get the metrics going for this podcast um, and allow people an understanding and taste of research that's out there we hope you enjoy so today uh, we're joined by Professor Dirk Whirling, who's Chair of, of Molecular Immune, Immunology. I didn't even know we actually had a Chair of Molecular Immunology until I saw your biography, so I apologise. But many, many thanks for, for joining us, um, and we know that you're incredibly busy um, and to give us your, your time today, so many thanks. That's not a problem. Um... So what do you want me to talk about? <laughs> well, I thought you thought you asked that. I, I was I was wondering if possible because looking over your uh, your biography and 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 CV and research interests, like it's 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 very um, phenomenal. But I was wondering if you could just briefly give uh, the listeners sort of how you've come to be to to uh, to sit in this chair in this glorious uh, studio that we have here at the RVC. <laughs> okay, that is. Um, it wasn't as straightforward as it looks on the CV. Um, and a lot of things actually just sort of happened. Um, and I think for me, the most um, important point was that when I was at last year in vet school in Hanover, we had a voluntary lecture series on tropical diseases of farm animals, which involved going to the labs of the International Atomic Energy um, Organization in Seibersdorf near Vienna. And there we were exposed to all these, let's call them nasty diseases we don't have anymore. And somehow that triggered in me the idea that I could do my big practical term in Africa, which I then did. So I worked for half a year in Uganda, which was an absolute phenomenal time. I did learn a lot of things. Um, none of them I could really use afterwards in veterinary practice. 
But through that, I then ended up um, doing my first PhD in Switzerland, um, which was a project involving the immune system of the cow, which at that time we didn't really know a lot about, but also involved working in Africa again. So I had, in my opinion, the best of both worlds, which was being paid in Europe or Switzerland and working in Africa. So, so did you? Sorry to interrupt. So, yeah. did you? Um, so, did you think before that that time when you were exposed to those lectures, what what you actually wanted to do with your your career? Um, I was, uh, or reason why I took this was that I wanted to be a farm vet. Yeah. So for me, it was clear that I'm going to work with pigs and cows and the other things sort of run along, um, and uh, so I had to. We didn't really have specialization at that time, but we had a sort of an intensified last year where you could have a bit more insight into farm animal diseases and the whole thing about prophylactic treatment and these kind of things. So all the things we're doing now um, on a daily basis, they were coming into the teaching system there. And as part of that was this benefit of, you know, traveling the world a bit. So did, did you did you uh, like apply or did someone pull you aside and say oh you should you should maybe apply for this No you applied PhD? you applied well so when i worked in africa um one of the aspects of the project i was working in was to figure out why the horse and frisian cows we exported to africa are doing so badly which now we understand um at that time there was a lot of uncertainty about this and what became clear fairly early on was that a lot of the diseases we got rid of in Europe they're still present in Africa so the cows coming there they caught all these diseases and therefore the immune system went haywire <coughs> and we were becoming interested to see whether this is potentially one of the reason why these cows develop um, other diseases more easily compared to their indigenous counterparts. So the project, the PhD project I was involved with was specifically on one virus, bovine leukemia virus, which induces immunosuppression. It's related to, or the, the disease per se is related to some adult forms of leukemia. Um, and what we figured out was that the horse and Frisian in Africa caught this virus, became immune suppressed, and then had a lot of parasitic and protozoal diseases. So we thought that some reaction, the virus is inducing some reaction in the immune system, which makes these cows far more susceptible to the disease. So it was um, a cutting edge at this time. Um, for me, it was a nice thing because I had to travel backward and forward to Africa. Um, so yeah, I quite enjoyed that. Yes, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And then, and then, did you did you think uh, if this was a means to do uh, farm and uh, farm work in general, so cattle and pigs, that then what what kept you in in research? research? Um, well, through that project, I got in contact with the equivalent in, of the Purbright Institute in Germany, which at that time when we still had East and West Germany, was based in Tübingen, which wasn't far from Zurich. And there was a guy there who was a really big shot in bovine leukemia virus research. And through that, I became um, 
I obtained a stipend of the German Research Society sort of as a postdoc to continue that work, which also then enabled me to travel more to Africa. Um, and through that, I got in contact with someone working at, at that time, the Institute for Animal Health in Compton. And they asked me to, they thought that the work I'm doing would fit quite nicely into their group. So we came up with the idea that I apply for a Marie Curie Research Fellowship, which I got. Um, yeah, and from then on, it just sort of developed, you know, and I thought, oh, this is quite cool, really. And I, I think what made me at the end stay in research was that I was able to actually dig down a bit and try to understand more why specific pathogens are able to persist in us and what they do on a cellular level which makes animals or cells sick. And I think that was something I missed sometimes um, during the lectures at university, that there was a point where we stopped and then I thought, yeah, and? So why is this actually? Um, so at the beginning, even when I worked in Compton, I still did locums on the weekend um, because I thought, you know, I need to stay in touch with the real world. Um, yeah, and that's how I ended up then where I am now. And um, and so, so you, your work centred around uh, cattle, but you you were involved in, in other species as well, but predom yeah. predominantly pigs as, as yeah. well. Did that come through the same... Now that no. that pig work came actually from a or was driven by a call the BBSSC had put out called combating endemic diseases for um, livestock improvement, and at that time we had Dirk Pfeiffer as an epidemiologist working here and Christopher Wolfers as an animal welfare person. So we were interested in how we can combine our knowledge not having a specific track record in pig diseases, but how we can combine our knowledge to convince the funding bodies and the reviewers that we can deliver on that. So we ended up having a quite large project on a disease called PMWS, or post-weaning multisystemic wasting syndrome in pigs, which is caused by a virus. And I thought this was a really, really great approach because we combined pure animal welfare aspects with epidemiology, with lab work, and out of this came recommendation for the pig industry. So within the five years of that project, um, we went from gathering data in the fields to the lab and then back out in the lab again. And some of the recommendations are still now in place with um, AHDB, so the, the Pork and Animal Health Executive Board. And I thought that was one of the best projects I ever had to manage, because not only because of the people involved, but also based on the fact that, you know, we went from practice into the lab and out of the practice again, and tried to have a an all encompassing holistic approach to the disease and how we can handle that, and that was great, honestly. So that, that was, in fact, one of one of the questions I had uh, written down was like, what what is your your you, you know best moment in your in your research so so far? I think I think this was really one of my my best moments because it clearly showed me that you don't need to have a specific track record in research as long as you have the right techniques and technologies in place and you have 
people with um, similar skills in other areas, that is really what you need. So, and I think this is something we sometimes forget in these days that we all are focused very much on our own areas or what we want to work in rather than taking a step back and thinking, okay, this is what I have in terms of techniques, technologies, equipment. How can I use this to ensure that I get grants? Or how can I contribute with that to other people grants to ensure that our success rate gets better? Yeah, which is, which is very important. I think we need to diversify a bit more, don't we, in that one health veterinary part yeah. of that model? Or um, I think, yes, you do. Um, I think you still have to have your sort of core research so you don't lose sight of that because otherwise you may end up with reviewers saying, well, there's no clear red line in your research. Um, it's all over the place, which I have heard from other colleagues. But as long as you do that plus contribute to others, then I think there's no no reasons why you shouldn't diversify, really. So the group you have here, uh, Professor, you, you've uh, you've been here for over a decade, haven't you? So, so the, the group that you have here, what are you currently um, researching? What are you currently looking into? So what we are looking into is um, started at my last job in Bern before I came here to the RVC, um, which was the trying to understand how the innate immune system, so the immune system we're all born with, how that works. Because before 2000, the understanding was the immune, the innate immune system is there. Um, it doesn't really discriminate a lot between pathogens and other microbes, and it works all the time the same way, independent of the species and so on. And what became clear then afterwards is that actually there are big species differences and using these species differences and understanding how our innate immune system works in farm animals potentially enables us to improve existing vaccines or to de or to develop new vaccine delivery platforms and that's what my group is currently working on so we we spend a lot of time trying to understand as much as we can on how the innate immune system of cows and pigs work in different stages of their life. And then now we are at the step that we go back into the real world. So we're using our lab-based knowledge to improve vaccines or come up with new vaccine delivery platforms. And I think this is quite exciting at the moment because as we all know, we have more and more problems with multidrug-resistant bacteria. We have the whole problem with contamination of antibiotics in our food chain. And as a result of that, we are faced with more and more antibiotics being banned in animals where the products are used for food production. So we need to come up with new ways. And combining for example, improvement of animal housing, so the whole animal welfare aspect with new vaccine delivery systems on improved vaccines, I think that's the way forward. So currently here at, at the RVC, I actually started now working more and more with our animal welfare group um, because I think, again, you can't just have a very narrow-minded and focused approach. You need to take everything into account. Um, so we're trying to improve animal welfare in the most holistic way possible by improving management, by improving housing, but at the same time 
trying to prevent disease outbreaks rather than treat disease outbreaks. That's, that's great. And, and with your vaccine delivery systems, my, my knowledge of uh, immunology is uh, incredibly small. <laughs> but but are, you, are you trying to target like specific points in that innate um, immune system for those species at, at the right yeah. time with the right adjuvant? I yeah. Suppose. So this is, this is really one of the most important points. So what we know is that within the innate immune system, we have specific receptors which discriminate sugars expressed on pathogenic viruses and pathogenic bacteria compared to those which are in us as commensals, for example. So we're trying to see whether we can use these sugars in a purified version to target vaccines specifically to these receptors to enhance the uptake of the vaccine and therefore potentially reduce the amount of vaccine you need to get to obtain protection but also we're trying to use um, modified pathogens as delivery vehicles for the actual vaccine for example in terms of oral immunization or so um, because if we need to vaccinate a large amount of animals and you know if you think about the numbers you have in a in a commercial chicken flock you know we're talking thousands of animals here then you can't really afford to vaccinate these chicken one by one. Um, so we need to find other ways to deliver the vaccines in a safe and useful manner and still ensure that all the birds are vaccinated. So using a, like a modified bacteria in itself yeah. To, to, yeah. to do that? So one, one example of what we're using at the moment is actually um, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which most of us know as a product which... Um, enables us to have happy hours because it's beer yeast. Okay. <laughs> um, now, the interesting thing f with the beer yeast is that within our gut, we actually have receptors recognizing specific sugar components in the yeast surface. So an idea, again, based on my background of working in Africa, an idea we had was that we could use the beer yeast and as a delivery system but in an inactivated form. So by doing so, you would get rid of the cooling chain because if the yeast is inactivated and properly inactivated, then um, it's not losing its adjuvant's effect. And at the same time, if it's inactivated, um, it's not considered a genetically modified organism anymore because it can't replicate, it's dead. So in terms of having this as a vaccine delivery platform in a country where you have unstable power supply conditions, you have changing climates, that would be actually a quite neat approach. Um, and we have a proof of concept study where we could show that this actually works. Um, so yeah, we're using a microbe to deliver a vaccine in a way that it doesn't contaminate the environment, it is safe to use in the animals, and 
the actual benefit of the yeast would be also that the food conversion rate in these animals is increased because you're adding flavor and proteins into that. So, so a, a win in a number of ways. It's really interesting about your, the delivery system. I was, I was listening to um, it's a podcast called This Week in Virology, which is very, very interesting, but the, 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 the group that uh, got eradicated smallpox and, mm. and the idea was that how do you, how do you have stable you know, vaccines yeah. in countries where you don't have refrigeration and yeah. you don't have the resources available? So to design something that is... Because yeast are very robust, and as, as bacteria go, and if they yeah. have a quiescent stage, then then that that sounds uh, that sounds great. And are you, are you limited with what you can actually vaccinate for using using that technology? So at the moment, the yes, we are a bit limited. Um, so we have a postdoc currently working on this to see how we can improve on what proteins, what foreign proteins we can express in the yeast so that the yeast still stays happy and can be used as a delivery system. Um, so, yeah, we need to, in quotation mark, fiddle with the yeast a bit. And that's the the more challenging part at the moment. Um, I think once uh, this is, has been achieved, and if you look around in farm animal vaccines, specifically in the low and medium income countries at the moment then really the idea is to go to delivery platforms where we can exchange the vaccine antigen fairly fast so that you can respond to an outbreak in a very specific and fast manner and i think having platforms and not only ours there's others out there as well which can be standardized in the production and then distributed from one central place that should help actually quite a lot to try and combat not only exotic diseases but also endemic diseases. And are, uh, are governments helping fund this or industry or, or does, does money come from all sorts of sources? Yeah, there's actually, um, over the last couple of years, there's a big drive in developing such vaccine platforms not only through the government, there's a Global Challenge Research Fund, which has government money, but also a lot of money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where we currently have a project as well. Um, so it's a, bit, it's a bit both, really. It's government plus foundations plus industry money. But what is also quite interesting, and I think this is very important, is that there's more and more funding bodies out there, including industry, who also provide money to, um, let's call it re-educate vets as well as farmers, to make them aware of the current need for different approaches to treat diseases. Because at the moment, our box standard approach, so to say, is we have a a sick animal, we treat it with antibiotics. Now, this will not be our box standard approach in the next couple of years to come and what we're learning for example is that our microbiome so the the gut flora we have has a huge impact on how our immune system responds as well and suddenly we're back to square one where we can develop holistic treatment approaches by combining animal welfare aspect animal management aspect animal feeding strategies and preventive um, treatment rather than having to treat sick animals. And I think this 
out of that necessity could could suddenly come something really good for not only the animal side but also for the human side because if we can reduce or as we have to reduce the amount of antibiotics we're using suddenly all the food products become safer and therefore um, potentially we also impact on multidrug resistant bacteria such as MRSA in, in humans as well so as painful it may be at the moment to come up with these new strategies in the long term, I think these are quite exciting times, especially if we can really have a holistic treatment approach, which we didn't have so far for farm animals. And are you working on the assumption that, that there will come a time, particularly in, in say, Europe or, or North America or even, even Asia, where antibiotics will be, will be manned from production animals, so we'll, we'll have to... Um, think outside the box, as it were, how to prevent diseases in food-producing species? I think we will see more and more restrictions on using antibiotics in a prophylactic way, which I always find a quite puzzling concept. Um, so, yes, I think especially in the so-called developed world that will impact on us but I would not be surprised if this is not only the case for the farm animals but for the companion animal side as well. We have no idea how many of these antibiotics are given for example in the horse industry as prophylactic treatment without having a proper diagnosis or something like this or similar to human medicine how many animals get prescribed antibiotics because there's potentially a cold or a flu virus there. Um, completely wrong approach. And I think that that's why I'm convinced that we have to rethink our situation. That's why I hope we have more impact on how animals are housed. Um, potentially that also leads to rethinking on how long can we use cows, for example? And how much can we impact on disease resistant with breeding strategies? So going away for, from the concept of breeding for production back to the concept of breeding for best purpose, including all the health traits. And if that requires that some of our animals produce less but stay healthier, well, I think this is um, something we have to achieve. And definitely better in the oh, in the absolutely, long absolutely. And so, if if you uh, if you had the ability to in, within your field to answer any specific question or would like the the funding to uh, answer that question, what 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 would that question be? I think I would like really to develop a an oral vaccine, which works extremely well which induces an immune response in the gut, um, so protects your mucosa from the pathogens actually doing something there, but also then protects um, you systemically, and it's safe to use, it doesn't need a cooling chain, and you can just distribute it to the so-called backyard farmers, you know, the ones which are having one, two animals for your own production or consumption, and it just add some pellets to the food and then everything is, you know, all, all hunky-dory. <laughs> now, that, that sounds like a great idea. Um, but in general, I think we, 
Now let me go a step back. A lot of vaccines are tested initially in mice. And we know now from enough examples that a lot of vaccines work in mice, but then don't work in the actually target species. But you can turn this around. You could ask how many vaccines, how many good vaccines for the target species were actually abandoned because they didn't work in mice. So I think what we need to keep in mind is really that we need to test or assess new treatment strategies as soon as possible in the real world under different conditions and potentially take different production strategies and different breeds and so into account. Um, and I think if I can leave a dent there, or if the work my group is doing can leave a dent there, then I consider that at the moment a job well done. That sounds a, a very very good job and a and a, a, a global implication. Yeah. Because if you if you have a delivery system that uh, doesn't need refrigeration or can be produced somewhere and distributed um, globally and and re- and remain viable, then that that's you know amazing without having to keep it refrigerated or frozen or yeah and i mean specifically if you think about the the situation in so-called low and median income countries so we're talking sub-saharan africa where you have farmers really struggling to keep their goat herds or their one two three cows or pigs alive then i think there's a point where we really can improve um fairly easily without having to use antibiotics which are in some situations i saw are not very well controlled so you can still buy antibiotics which are past their shelf life in the so-called village pharmacies in africa Um, and i think if we get a handle on that and ban this or can ensure that this doesn't happen anymore then that helps not only people in Africa, but ultimately also us. Mm. And, you know, I know that the majority of farmers are don't feel really happy when their animals are sick. So if you then think about the whole social and economic impact you may have, it's not only that they may earn a bit more because their animals are healthier and therefore produce more, but also they sleep better at night, so to say, because they know that their animals are not ill. Um, and I think if we can, and this is independent really of the country we're talking about, so if we can impact on this a bit as well, I think that will be quite great. Mm-hmm. But that requires not only us doing the job in the lab, but then also um, the farmers and vets in practice working with us. That sounds a bit arrogant, but what I mean by that is that it is not something we alone can achieve. Others have to buy into that and then actively work along with each other to implement these new strategies. And that's where I see the biggest challenge in this whole story of antimicrobial, um, in- increased antimicrobial resistant. And do, you, do you find it, um, col- is there a lot of collaboration in, in say, your, your field, as in do you um, talk to people in different parts of the world about what you're doing, or is there a bit of competition in trying to get funding to you know create sustainability for what your group are, are, are trying to achieve or is there is it actually quite collaborative in every in, in, across the globe 
I would say in general you have the the normal human problems involved in that. So you have colleagues who are very restricted with their collaborative approaches and you have colleagues which are quite happy to collaborate. Um, over the years you know who to collaborate with and out of that then comes international collaboration. So two of the big projects I'm involved in at the moment they have collaborators from Africa, South America, China and India on there. And I think this is really the only way um, we can have two things, a long sustainable funding, which means that you can easily slot then smaller projects for PhD students or postdocs into that. But you also then have the international collaboration and hopefully therefore the faster exchange of ideas and technologies which then go a lot faster into into the real world. Um, so I think we need, or in general, universities need to run on sort of two levels. They have these big projects and then you, for long-term funding, and then you slot PhD students and postdoc projects into that to have the more local funding. Mm, but it's quite fun, you know, because see, in these big projects, um, you are sometimes made aware of issues which you didn't think about. Um, so we are currently in a process of submitting a new proposal which involves, for the first time, sociologists as well to assess why farmers are in specific areas and not so happy to vaccinate calves or vaccinate animals in general and what we can do about this to convince them or um, at least understand what their reservation is when it comes to vaccination and whether this is driven purely by economic or whether there's a social component into that. Um, so I think this, this becomes more and more important that we understand really how all that really interacts with each other. That's, that's, that's great because I mentioned there's a, a massive social component because I believe there's problems with vaccinating even people in, yes. in certain parts of the world and even however educated you think a population of people are, yeah. they still go against what's uh, the information yes. that's, that's provided. Yeah. And there's a lot of, um, to, to use one of these new terms, fake news out there as well, saying that you know all these vaccine companies are driven purely by pharma companies to increase their their income or their shareholder price and the share price and all that um which you know probably in some cases may be the case but in other cases um it's definitely not the case um so yeah we need to we need to change people's opinion about preventive treatment or treatment in general mm. absolutely well, maybe I could um, uh, ask you a few uh, sort of like closing uh, uh, comments. So, so you, um, uh, what what advice would you would you give? Uh, I know we, we might have spoke briefly about this when the mics were closed, but what what brief advice would you give to someone who's uh, whether a, a vet student or a science student who is interested in in research about about getting getting involved or or uh, starting off on along that path? I mean, what my what helped me a lot was that I actually had two very good um, supervisors slash mentors who 
um, I think uh, realized that I'm quite enthusiastic about what I was doing at that time and they fostered that. So I think picking a supervisor is the most crucial part in the whole in the whole world if you want to have a career in science um you know you need to find out so talking to other members of the group i think it's quite essential um they may tell you all the things which you don't find out in the official interview but then also picking the supervisor in terms of you know how big is the groups so if you have these really big groups it's very unlikely that you see your supervisor um, so you can question whether this is a really good mentor. If you have, yes, that person may have a big name, but then you are one under many, and the papers coming out from your work may be classified as, oh, this is that group. Whereas if you have a smaller group, then you may have actually a supervisor who's very active and interested in your work because they want to see what happens as well. Um, and therefore, they have a far more active interest in the work you're doing and potentially mentor you a lot better compared to the large groups or the very small groups where you are just one or two people in the group and your supervisor is so busy with other things that, again, you don't see that supervisor for a long time. So picking the supervisor is it's really important. And I think at the end... You have one has to listen to the gut feeling as well. If you come away from an interview or talking to group members, and your gut says, mm, then maybe listen to that, and maybe pick another group which may not be as good, but where your gut feeling says, yes, I will fit into that, because at the end you will spend eight hours or more per day in work, and if you're not happy with that, then you won't succeed. And there's nothing worse than doing work which you don't like so early on. That comes later, maybe. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, and you've you've been at the RBC a, a, a while, and and uh, what what is it that you you enjoy about uh, about doing research here? I mean, what I find quite amazing is that um, you have a lot of really passionate people here, passionate about their teaching, their research, and that's something I really enjoy here. Um, Lucky for me, I think, again, listening to my gut feeling, I have a, a very, I have really great people in my group which works as a team. And uh, yeah, if it wouldn't be for the people, um, I'm not sure whether I would still work here. Um, I have, in the majority of cases, it is really amazing how willing people are to work with you if they see a benefit in everything um, and then to a certain extent bending over backwards to make that work and I think that's absolutely great. Well, maybe we need to uh, to talk about um, your your how how you how you lead in a in a in a separate uh, in a separate uh, conversation, um, and uh, and have you have you ever had a thought about if you didn't uh, go to uh, Vienna and if you didn't uh, go to Africa all those years ago, what what do you think you would be doing now? That's um, a question I quite often ask me, especially when you get these rejection letters from grant applications. <laughs> Um, 
I don't know. It's really a question. I mean, I like farm animals, so I'm pretty sure that I would work in a farm animal practice. Um, I think that I would be not happy with, in quotation mark, just treating farm animals. I think I would probably be one of those guys who would like to do something beforehand. So I would like to try and work with farmers to prevent that disease outbreak actually happens and you can optimize management and animal welfare in such a way that's beneficial for the animals and therefore for the farmers. But I think yeah, I never got really sort of the the connection with companion animal and horses. Um, I'm I'm coming from a small hilly area in northern Bavaria where I grew up with farm animals and cats and dogs were there. Um, but it wasn't really that cats and dogs at that time had the same standing in a family as they may have now sometimes. So I think I would still work with farm animals. And and just uh, lastly, um, and, and this a bit, a bit a bit maybe slightly left field, but uh, I think it's important. Like throughout the profession, when we talk about um, mental health in general, mm. I was just I was just wondering if you have a, a piece of advice or something that you actually do to uh, um, to um, make sure that you're okay. Um, my advice would be have a couple of really good friends and try to keep a hobby or sport or something like that. Um, I think it is absolutely important to have something else in your life so that you can get rid of stress or that you can whinge into someone's ear and they don't say, ah, pull yourself together, man, but really listening. And, yeah, you know, maybe work is not everything. I can easily say that. Um, I don't think that I always stick to that rule. Uh, I think work is a really, unfortunately, a very important component of our daily life. And if you think about it, you know, we're, we're all spending probably eight, nine hours in one place without having enough social contact. So having something outside that is very important. But then going back to what I said before, if you enjoy working in a place, then that's fine. If you don't enjoy it, then maybe think about changing in a different position because there's no point spending eight, nine hours a day on something you don't enjoy. Um, that just sooner or later will have an impact on your mental health. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Whirling, for your, your time today. That's and, fine. Uh, and I'm sure I'll ask you uh, back, hopefully, in the previous incarnation of the podcast, which was over seven years ago, uh, you, you spoke a couple of times, so, so hopefully within the next seven years. That yeah, would that would be great. I'm happy to come back. <laughs> thank, thank you, you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this RBC podcast. Um, we hope you enjoyed listening to Professor Dirk Whirling there. Um, we'll be back in a month's time to give you another researcher that's involved in the RVC. And we'll plan to have these podcasts uh, once a month. Um, So please hit the subscribe button on your your, uh, smartphone or generic fruit-based device. 
and that way you won't even have to worry about missing one of these uh, one of these episodes any relevant information or show notes or or uh, journal articles that uh, people have spoken about we'll put that on the rvc research page so if you just type in rvc research podcast it should be top of the tree in your search engine of choice if you have any questions about this podcast, then please either email me dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or you can tweet at Dom Barfield. Many thanks for listening. Bye-bye.